Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Rather than deal with our anxiety, we build it out further. Now it's five or six feet. Now I won't let you even get close to me while I sit in the center going, oh, everything is so lonely while I'm pushing everything away. So part of our job, each of us, is to determine What's our real legitimate ring of safety and how far away is our ring of fear? And part of our work of self-awareness is how do we bring them back together? Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between. Today, I have been waiting for this interview and I think I... I looked for this guy, I reached out to this guest back in July and couldn't get him on until now, which actually seems like the perfect time to have Mark Nepo on. And if you don't know Mark, Mark is an incredible spiritual teacher, one of the best of our times. He's a New York Times bestselling author, poet, spiritual advisor, and he's taught both poetry, and spirituality for over 40 years. He uh, devotes much of his beautiful writings and teachings to the journey of inner transformation and of our the relationships in our life. And a lot of this, much of this was um, spurned by an early diagnosis with lymphoma in his 30s. And, his, and he credits the struggle that he faced to really helping him shape the philosophy of his life. So today, Mark and I are going to dig into one of his two new books out this year, Falling Down and Getting Up. His other book, The Half-Life of Angels, is also out this year. Um, two books in one year is pretty impressive. I've been working on a book proposal for two years now and haven't made so much progress. So welcome, Mark. I'm so just thrilled. I feel like I want to just grab a cup of coffee, sit down and have you kind of pour your wisdom over me in these in this kind of really painful time in our history, it feels like. Oh, so welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. And and, and these are such difficult 
times. And, and you know, what I always say is that to begin with is that I don't have any answers. Uh, you know, what I offer are examples, not instructions. And we, we need to look at these things together in order um, to love our way, love each other forward. That's what I like to say and believe in. So for people who are new to you, and perhaps people who are listening to my show for the first time or listening to you for the first time, how did you become both a poet and a spiritual advisor, sort of against really your family's better wishes and better judgment <laughs> in many cases? <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm 72 now, which when I met someone my age younger, I thought they were ancient. It doesn't seem so old now. And, uh, but, you know, early in my life, I think I, I was born, my kind of native language of the heart was through metaphor, even before I knew what that meant. Even as a, as a little boy, I felt like life was speaking to me through metaphor. But um, I, I really, you know, became so deeply in a student of all paths that, as you mentioned, in my early 30s, I had a rare form of lymphoma. Uh, I almost died from it. And I hadn't been through anything life-threatening up to that point. And that just turned me inside out and upside down. And I was always a heart-centered person in terms of what I believed in. But before my cancer journey, I was way too much in my head. And not through any wisdom on my part, um, but I was dropped into my heart. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. I have a great tie to the Jewish heritage. But from that cancer journey, I've become a student of all paths because I had so many people offer me help and blessings from all traditions. So on the other side, all those years ago, and even to this day, I'm not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. And I was challenged to believe in everything. And so all of my work, all of my books, all of my teaching, you know, believe, I, I try to affirm what I think is the central truth of all traditions and the unique gifts of each. And it's the cancer survivor in me that feels committed to saying, okay, how, if something speaks to you, how can it be of use? How can it be of use in your life? When you, I have so many questions just from what you said. So the first one is, how can we recognize dropping from our heads into our hearts? Well, you know, there is, much later I learned there is a Lakota saying, the longest journey you will make in your life is from your head to your heart. And that's not because we're stupid or slow, or it's because there is a continent between our head and our heart, and it takes time. And usually great love and great suffering drop us. You know, everyone uh, into our authenticity, everyone will be given the chance to be dropped into the depth of life. And that's when the spiritual journey deepens and expands, and it's all all about relationship and i think um it comes to us by what we experience and letting experience be our teacher and trusting our heart to tell us what is true and and that 
you know, often I have found, and it's with all my writing too, I know what's true before I understand it. And so I have to work with it for it to be my teacher. I can't just, you know, often in our modern world, we work the other way around. Oh, I need to understand it. And then I'll decide it's true. Well, no, uh, you know, whether it's in relationship, in life, in nature, whatever it might be, I know it's true in my heart. And then I have to be in conversation with it to understand it and let it be my teacher. So there's really a big element of trust in what you're speaking of. Absolutely. And the word trust literally means to follow your heart. And so it's our it's our authenticity in our heart that leads us to each other. So do you feel like, I mean, you had this cancer diagnosis early on that broke you open. Do we need some sort of life-threatening experience or what you you called like some sort of painful experience to drop us into that place? Or can we find that place other ways? I, I think that it's not just, you know, often it's a a loss or a threatening situation, but it doesn't have to be. It could be wonder or grace or beauty or surprise or being loved unconditionally for the first time. It it just happened to be cancer for me was the catalyst. So I am honest about talking about how, but it's not only, you know, it's not only difficult passages or thresholds. It can be almost anything. And sometimes, you know, the great poet Rilke from his writings and letters, it doesn't seem to be any external event, uh, difficult or wondrous. He just one day was kind of reflecting and writing in an attic in Paris and the, the world as he knew it was pulled out from under him and, and things changed. What's most important is that when something is opened to us, that we follow it, that we follow it. And, you know, that's one of the most difficult things right now. It's always been, but it's so strident in our, in our modern world is that we don't welcome anything new. It's almost as if we've forgotten how to learn. And so when mm. we, when we don't follow our heart, when we let fear guide us, then we only look for what will confirm what we already know. And that's not learning. No, thank, thank God you're not me. Teach me what I don't know. What do you think that's about in terms of our closed offness, if that's even a word, being so closed off to being open and curious to other, to what's different than us? Especially, I mean, we would think we've come so far, and yet it seems like we have not. Well, I think, you know, in my earlier book, Surviving Storms, I tried, my guess, uh, in the first part of that book, to try to try my guess at how we are where we are today in the modern world. And there are several things, let me just touch on a few, that I think have led us to this kind of perfect storm of isolation and fear. And, and they go all the way back to, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. Now, uh, at that, and then you add to that the technological revolution more recently. But so the first thing is that, you know, 
before that industrial revolution, most uh, of our, the way we lived and worked was all home and work were in the same place. You know, most of it was farming, but even if I were a cobbler and I made shoes, I mostly did that at home. And so now all of a sudden you have factories. And so the first thing that changes is we have to leave home to work. We actually spend most of our time somewhere else and that community is broken. And the second part is that whatever we had done before that, um, we we did the entire process we experienced wholeness you planted the seeds and you went all the way through to harvest even if you were you made shoes you you skinned the animal you made the shoes you hit made the laces you made the heels well now all of a sudden you're working in a factory and for the god of efficiency and profit you're said no you're just going to make laces for 40 hours a week and you're going to do it away from home so these things affect us. And so, you know, at that time in the 1840s, um, Karl Marx and, you know, Karl Marx often gets a bad rap, but Marx didn't create Marxism, dictators did. But he was a sociologist who had great insights and we can't lose his insights. And one of them was he was alive at this time and immediately he didn't say, uh, let's not have progress. He said, all of these things will will divide people from their basic human nature and if right. happen- so the separateness you see the separate the separation over time yes and so he foresaw he said if you have enough citizens divorced from their basic human nature you will have an alien nation and he coined the term alienation He even foresaw the first generation of therapists as alienists to help repair people to their wholeness and their basic human nature. Well, we sure need that today. We sure need that today. So now you add on top of that the the certainly the isolation of the pandemic, but you add on top of that the insidious isolation of social media and technology, you know, we we run around with and, and I'm I love technology. Look, we're able to be together today, but they're tools. They're not places to live. And so, you know, you take we're all on our tablets, our phones, our computers. Well, we think when we're on our phone or our tablet or that we're alone. Well, we're, we're, we're not al- or we think we're in relationship we're not in either they are gateways to solitude and relationship but they are not so we actually are in a digital nether world so we expend all this energy but we don't get the rewards from true solitude or from true relationship and that makes us even more isolated and so i feel like today so many of us have lost our direct connection to life you know, if you have a direct connection to life, you have a reverence for life. And if you have a reverence for life, you can't do harm. So the fact that there's so much, even take, you know, the in, in, incredible, you know, insurrection, forget all the politics. I was like so many people, I saw it live on TV. 
And I was kind of stunned by the fact that people were being barbarically violent while taking pictures of themselves as if they didn't know if this was real or a video game. And, and it said to me, wow, we've lost this direct connection and all with life and all the spiritual traditions are not abstract. Every one of them offers ways to recover and repair that direct connection with life, just as Marx foresaw that we need through relationship and love and therapy uh, and education to restore our basic human nature. There are and how? Yeah. No, I was just going to say there are facts. There are facts. You know, if I put my hand in water, I don't need you to tell me it's wet. <laughs> and if I'm in pain, so, yeah, go ahead. So, a few things. One, I don't know if you do you watch Bill Maher mm-hmm. real time ever. He just, I think it was just last week, he spoke on this. His and whatever he does at the end, I always forget what it's called, but he talked about not just social media, but that we no longer even go to the grocery store. We have someone who picks up our food, brings it to our door. And if we do go to the grocery store, we don't check out, we check out by ourselves. We don't even have that, that those small interactions with other humans that, that make life meaningful. And you might not know this person. I, people have heard this if they've been listening for a while. I go to my grocery store every Sunday morning at the same time, unless I'm out of town. And when I'm there, I see the same people. We all smile to each other. I've, I feel like I've watched people's kids grow up at the grocery yeah. store. It's like this weird microcosm. I'm friends with the people behind the meat counter. They know me. There is a sense of community that forms in these small little microcosms. Absolutely. And we've been so cut off from that. So other than going to the grocery store again, how do we find, and maybe, you know, not um, shopping everything on Amazon, how do we find our way? How do we begin to find our way back well, to this? Well, this, this is so, again, I, I'm the, I love uh, all the advancements of progress, but we need spiritual aerobics. Let me back up on that and what I mean by that. So, you know, 100 years ago um, or a little more, we didn't have electricity. We had to go chop wood. We had, you know, we, we had all the this labor in order to survive. Now, I don't want to give up my heat and light. <laughs> OK, but we all have had to have physical aerobics to compensate for progress. So we jog, we do yoga, we go to the gym. We OK, now we're at a place where we need spiritual aerobics to compensate for the side effects of progress. We need to make extra efforts to get out of the house, to say hello, to go places, okay, to do things, to listen to people and not be hypnotized by the illusion of contact. So another thing that that the example of this is um, how. And so this well, so let me say this first. So this means we have to um, reach out. You know, I, I, I do a lot of interviews and, and last summer I was interviewed by a wonderful young person in London and she had said that, you know, her generation was experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. 
And, you know, my, my immediate res heart response was from my cancer journey, you don't interview ambulance drivers. You take the first one that comes along. Mm -hmm. And so if you're lonely, you get out of the house and you say, hello, even it, not that you're going to find a life partner or that, but that you, you know, you don't read at home. You go read in public somewhere at a cafe. You have to take these extra steps to ensure you have contact with, with others. And this is, um, it's more incumbent on us today to reach out than before because so much of the modern world does insulate us. So we, whereas before we only had to take one step to get contact, now we got to take two or three. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, and these feel like such simple things. So what makes it so hard for us to do that? Is it that we just get so in ourselves that we can't even begin to think about that first step? Well, and again, let me again say, I don't have an answer, but I can speak to it. And, and I think that what happens is, you know, one of the things that we do as humans, being human beings, the being is spiritual and infinite and the human is very finite. And so that's part of our journey is how, how do we, how do they work together? And who do we follow? Do we follow spirit and let our humanness adjust to it? Or do we make our humanness, our spirituality adjust to our humanness? <laughs> so that's okay. So, you know, so this is the thing. So we all have, let's talk about fear for a minute. So we all have um, a legitimate ring of safety around us that if, Something comes within that ring of safety that appears dangerous. That's the true purpose of fear, to alert us to true danger. So say that ring is two feet, just for argument for our conversation. Well, then what we do when we follow our fear is, say I get scared and something, I go, oh, whoo, that was close. You know, just to be sure, going forward, I'm going to add another foot and a half to that ring of safety, just in case. Mm -hmm. Well, now I've made, and now over time, I've made that extra distance of fear. And then over time, if I now think that's the ring of safety, you'd see I pushed things away from me and I won't let them get closer. And now to be careful, you know what? Let's push it out a little farther, you know, just to be safe so I don't have to worry about it. 
rather than deal with our anxiety, we build it out further. Now it's five or six feet. Now I won't let you even get close to me while I sit in the center going, oh, everything is so lonely. And nobody, while I'm pushing everything away. So part of our job, each of us is to determine what's our real legitimate ring of safety and how far away is our ring of fear? And part of our work of self-awareness is how do we bring them back together so I don't keep pushing life away from me rather than deal with my fear, rather than deal with, you know, I, I have a friend who in our day and age is terribly afraid of having his house broken into. Okay, that's legitimate. There's a certain amount of that that's accurate but not everything. And I've watched this person put one, two, three locks on their door. Wow. None of that, none of the second or third lock is going to make him feel safer. That's an inside job. So you talk about fear, that, the, that these fear, grief, pain are our greatest teachers. How do we learn from them? How do we turn them into an inside job and, and explore them versus put four locks on our doors when everything that's coming at us feels scary? Well, fear. So this is, this is um, there is a certain amount of difficulty in life that is unavoidable, just like we can't, we all have to experience gravity. <laughs> you can't, we all have to be there. And so this is where fear, pain, and grief, no one can escape these. Mm. We can only hold each other during them and listen to each other. Mm. And that's in, that's the way there are deeper teachers. And so we spend a lot of time, understandably, but um, give, giving over to trying to run from fear, pain, and grief, trying to eliminate them. So there's a lot of suffering that comes from resisting suffering. Carl Jung said, neurosis is the substitute for legitimate suffering. Mm. And that, that is, I think what you talk about is in your book, people who are present with pain move through it more quickly. Yes. And that was a study that was done by someone that I quoted in the book. I can't remember right now who, but yes. So the only way out is through. We've heard that expression. And so we help. I think life has been made just difficult enough that we need each other to ensure the journey of love. And so as much as we don't want to go through pain, you know, we experience pain and we can't avoid it, we have to move through it. And fear, you know, I had a great teaching about fear when I was going through my cancer journey. And um, there, there's a Chinese poet from the Tang Dynasty in the 700s, Tu Fu. He was one of the first people that I read of another time that felt so real to me, I wish I could have sit down and talked to this guy. And he appeared to me as a guide during my cancer journey. You know, I was in my early 30s, I, like I said, I'd never been through anything this difficult and I was afraid of everything. Oh my God. I was just terrified. Yeah. I've and I there. had this dream in which 
I saw Tufu on a beach sitting cross-legged with a branch making, you know, signs in the sand. And I ran up to him and I said, how do I block the fear? And he ignored me and I got kind of angry and I got in his face and I said, how do I block the fear? And without looking at me, he waved the branch over his head and he said, how does a tree block the wind? And he disappeared. And I woke up. And the lesson was a tree doesn't block the wind. It lets it through. Mm -hmm. It lets it through. And the only thing to do is let the fear. So I've learned since that fear is to be moved through, not obeyed. So how do we then move through that fear? What does that look like in practical life? Because I love what you said, and I agree. Like when you don't, when you resist suffering, it becomes neurosis. And that's what I see in my work, right? Like people who are constantly resisting life. And I think John Breer, who's a trauma um, therapist, do you know, have you heard of him? No. He has, he has, I'm assuming this is, these are his words, but um, he says, you don't, you don't resist the wave you learn to surf. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And it's that same concept that you can't push against what is. I mean, you can, well, but it's not going to serve. The truth is, is that often the things we push against have already happened. Like, you know, that's where the heart leads and the mind catches up. So often when I don't want to be sad, I already am. <laughs> when you don't want to be scared, you already are. Uh, yeah, and when I and when I don't want things to change, the truth is they already have, and I'm the last one to know. So you know, <laughs> it, it, it's one of the things that in the Buddhist tradition, which I think is the hardest and simplest practice of all, is to see things just as they are. As human beings, we tend to inflate and deflate, and so, and we're not going to avoid that, but you know, we, we have to continue to look until things right size, just as they are here. Let me share. This is an ancient anonymous Hindu teaching story about fear and pain. So there's a master and an apprentice always. And the truth is that the master finds the apprentice very annoying because all the apprentice does is complain, complain, complain. So the master says, I want you to get a handful of salt, put it in a glass of water and bring it to me quietly. So the apprentice brings it. The master says, drink. The apprentice drinks and he spits it out. And what's the matter? The apprentice says, it's bitter. The master says, I want you to get the same exact handful of salt and follow me quietly. So the apprentice has a handful of salt. The master leads him to a lake. He says, put it in the lake. And the master says, now drink. He kneels down. He scoops some water. It dribbles down his chin. And the master says, well. And the apprentice says, oh, it's fresh. The master looks at the apprentice. He says, stop being a glass. Become a lake. <laughs> mm -hmm. Stop being a glass. Become a lake. So, you know, again, I, I tell that story because of what it says to me is that no one can escape pain and fear. Everyone gets their handful of salt. So the question is, what do we do with it? So 
Well, we might hear that story and say, well, it's not good to be a glass. I won't do that. Well, we will because we're human, but we don't have to stay that way. So the way that pain and fear say hello is to make us a glass, make us tight. But the only thing to do when experiencing pain and fear is to enlarge our sense of things. Become a lake. So that allows us to right size pain and fear. And if we don't, if we stay a glass, not only will the pain and fear be more acute, but we will also get bitter. So the question is for each of us, what are the experiences, practices, and relationships that allow us to enlarge our sense of things when we are met with pain and fear? So each of us has to personalize that. What do we do? Do we call each other up? Do you call a dear friend? Do you listen to that piece of music that opens your heart? Do you read that favorite passage? Do you go out in nature? Do you garden? Do you make a meal? Do you call up another friend and ask for a store? What are the things, experiences, practices, and relationships that allow you to enlarge your sense of things? when you are met with pain and fear, not to eliminate them so that you can move through them. So beautiful. I could just listen to you all day. Oh. (laughs) And it's so inspiring because it is simple, simple. And we've complicated things. Well, and and again, not to look at ourselves, the work of self-awareness is not with judgment, but, but course correction. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, I'm a glass today. How do I enlarge? How do I become a lake? As someone who's taught spirituality for as long as you have, how do you define spirituality and what makes a spiritual warrior? So spirituality to me is our relationship to life and our relationship as a living part to a living whole okay uh you know if you believe in anything larger than yourself i would say you're a mystic now as soon as we try to name what's larger than us then we go to our theological corners it's jesus it's moses it's buddha it's allah no it's nature it's physics Even an atheist believes in something larger than themselves. They just call it nothing. I call it everything. We can still talk. So spirituality is, and I love the Hindu sense of this because you've heard the term namaste Mm -hmm. or namaste. I I have the Brooklyn pronunciation of it, (laughs) namaste. But, um, and what that beautifully means is I bow or honor the portion of universal spirit that resides in you. In the West, we call that soul. Mm -hmm. But I love that sense. There is, you know, just like if you take a a bluebird house and, you know, they often have to be posted in the open. Well, the air that is in that bluebird house is is a portion of the sky. That's like the portion of spirit that's in us. It's the same as universal spirit, but it moves through us. And our job as spirits in bodies and time on earth is how do we let it exchange 
the spirit that's in the little in our bluebird house and in the rest of the of life and how do we let it inform us and how do we stay in relationship to it so a spiritual warrior um is someone committed to a life of transformation not a military warrior someone who is committed to a life of transformation so that we stay in conversation and relationship with life and how beautiful is that because i think what it really encapsulates is that this is ongoing that there is n- it, it seems to me that there's never a sure knowing that my way is the right way and everybody else's is the wrong way. And that there's really this like curiosity and embracing of life and what life brings, brings to us in every moment of every day and how each of those moments become teachers. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in a, an earlier book of mine called more together than alone um you know i really uh explore this whole m- m- mystery and magic of community and and relationship and so this is one of the most insidious things uh that that we all suffer from being human uh is this impulse when something works for us to impose it on others why isn't it enough for us? Why? Do, I mean, this goes back to the Crusades. This goes back, you know, Cicero, the great Roman orator, he uh, he commented and, and talked about six habits of thinking that 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 isolate us and, and shrink, shrink, diminish us. And one of them was this was the uh, the want to have others do and think as we do we're seeing it you know right now all over the world and and here in america and so you know why again why isn't it enough if something works for me that it's enough for me and i can support you in finding what works for you and you know so a great uh metaphor for this is every spring in nature thousands of insects and birds each one brings is drawn to a particular nectar and to seed a particular pollen and then we have the diversity and wonder of spring if the bees somehow were able they were fundamentalist bees and they decided (laughs) we're going to impose on all everybody's got to do it our way you wouldn't have spring. And I think that all the different traditions, spiritual traditions, including no tradition, we need every one of them because we don't know which one will bring the spirit through each human being. So it's not one size fits all. We need all of them. How much do you feel like we've stopped listening to one another as well? with all of this oh enormously enormously we have stopped listening uh so often today um you know people are reflexing without listening whatsoever they're just speaking without really listening to what's heard 
And I think yeah. that that's, um, you know, one of my early, early, early books was 7,000 Ways to Listen. Um, and, and that came from a beautiful linguist from Nigeria that I know who was telling me with excitement that there are, are at least 7,000 languages on earth. Many of them are oral. And I went home that night and went to sleep and I dreamt that, well, if there's 7,000 ways to speak, there have to be at least 7,000 ways to listen. You really get a lot of information in your dreams. Oh, I do. I do. I get a lot of images and, 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 and again, I think that, and to bring this, whether it's in dreaming or in conscious living, and this is a, this is a way I think that, uh, for us to move through difficulty is and confusion is whenever I'm confused or troubled or going through fear or pain, I try to stop and give my full attention to the nearest piece of life until it becomes my teacher. It could be a fly on a window. So do you then attribute that to like some people would say spirit teaching you a lesson life teaching you a lesson how do you make sense of when this information comes to you and inspires you so where so let me you, where does it come from yeah so let me share something and then an experience that was so foundational for me so one is that um let's look at Taoism, which is an early chinese philosophy and, and Tao means the way. They don't even try to name it. But the metaphor for that is very much like what you shared from that gentleman about uh, not fighting the wave, but, but surfing, learning how to surf it, is that the, the Tao, the Chinese Tao, Taoism looks at life as an invisible river. And every soul is a fish in that river. And so our job is to find the current and align with it. And when we do, so when a fish finds that swims with the current, it's not only using its strength, it's the current is moving with it. So it's, it is strong, but it's also getting resource from life. And that is very much when we are authentic and open hearted, we are all we can be. And then we align with the current of spirit that's always present. So that, you know, came to me, you know, during my cancer journey, I, it was just about two or three weeks after I had a rib removed from my back and I had a first chemo treatment in New York city that was horribly botched. And so I was in a holiday in room with loved ones and the only medicine I was given was oral. So I couldn't keep it down. So I was getting sick every 20 minutes and just after having a rib removed and it was, we were terrified. It was awful. It was painful and not through any wisdom on my part, but because I was exhausted, you know, we did eventually go to the emergency room, but just before, just as the sun was coming up, as I was sitting in the corner of this room, I realized that while this was happening to me, Somewhere nearby, a baby was being born. And somewhere nearby, a couple was making love for the first time. And somewhere nearby, probably a, 
uh, an elder parent and a grown adult son or daughter were repairing after years of not talking. And so life taught me in that moment that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. And, and that allowed me to be carried by that invisible river of spirit when I was so broken. I mean, just the ability to have that shift in insight is so powerful. And in my work with people, it's hard to get people to that place because they want to stay in their own brokenness so often. Well, yeah, and I think that one of the things that we do as human beings is that we, if I... If I'm broken, then I make the world a broken place. If I'm afraid, I make the world a fearful place. And the gift of that moment for me was I've, just, I've realized since that when I'm afraid, I need the company of those who know what it's like to be afraid, but I need everything not afraid to heal. When I'm broken, I need the company of those who know what it's like to be broken, but I need everything whole to heal. Thank God all of life isn't what I'm going through. And we, what we tend to do as human beings is we make everything about us or the other way we go, oh, well, since, since the rest of life isn't going through this, then what I'm going through is insignificant. No, both things are true. I was still afraid. I was still in pain. But it was, it was healing to know that the rest of the world was not afraid and not in pain. And so we, we have to, you know, this has been a great teacher for me, a paradox in the last 10, 15 years I'm still learning from is that all things are true. All things aren't fair or just, but all things are true. And it's the heart that has to open to absorb and integrate. It's so interesting as you're talking because what I've what I'm thinking about and what I've been thinking about particularly over the last two weeks as a Jewish woman, um, but also over the last four years as a therapist, is that it's historically that has been the experience of a therapist. You are there with someone while they are in this space of pain, of feeling broken, but you hold that hope. Over the past four years, as therapists, we've been in this, this same world in a way I, I'm not sure when else in the course of certainly more modern history that has been the case. Maybe, I mean, maybe Vietnam, things along those lines. How, and this, in the past two weeks, I've felt very protective of my own energy in terms of what I'm taking in because if I take in too much, then I can no longer hold the space for anybody else to explore what they need to That's explore why. because yes. I am so overwhelmed by every, all the information and how I'm feeling about it. And, but how do you see that in this time now when the, the helpers, the, the people who are helping to facilitate healing are also probably, I mean, I've spoken to other colleagues too, feel like they're also popcorn in this machine of chaos right now. Well, I think, I think that we are in a very difficult time. And I also feel that every generation and every life is faced with the same choices. The details are different. Yes, 
it was Vietnam. And in my parents' generation, it was World War II. And so there's always something to challenge us to make that archetypal choice between love and fear. What are we going to do this time? It's our turn. It's our turn. And I think that, you know, <clears throat> the more divorced we are from life, the, you know, violence ultimately is a last desperate attempt to feel. The, the need to feel doesn't go anywhere. And the more shut down we are, it comes out more and more sideways and more brutishly and horribly. And, and I do believe, you know, and that, uh, that the, the human goodness will outlast the cruelty. And so I do think we do have to, um, stay open and protect our, you know, there, there's a, uh, there's an indigenous ancient, uh, little story that's in many different versions of it in different cultures, but it basically is this about healers. There's a, there's a, uh, a shaman in a village and he recognizes that a little boy has the gift. So he goes to his parents and says, do I have your permission to train him? And they say, oh, we're honored. Yes, please do. He's like seven years old or something. So the first thing he tells the little boy is you will, you will want to heal someone. Don't until I tell you you're ready. So, of course, <laughs> he comes across a, a woman, older woman who's an elder who's suffering. And he, his heart's moving and he just lays hands on her. And sure enough, he heals her, but then he gets sick. And the shaman finds him, heals him. And as soon as the boy comes, uh, becomes conscious, the shaman says, what did I tell you? <laughs> and he says to him, there are twin calls to healing. The first is the drawing out of illness, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, from the ill person. But the second one is just as important. The second skill of healing is not to get sick yourself or to be an instrument of contagion and take it from one and give it to another. So until you know both, you can't heal. And we, you know, in all these years later, we have lots of mechanical and robotic arms. But those twin calls of healing, whether it's professional or personal in relationships, are still very, very valid and important. How do we draw the illness out and what do we do with it? What do we do with it? And, um, and you know, so that is so important uh, right now more than anything. And, and, you know, let me let me speak to what's happening in Israel right now. Um, I think, you know, I know I feel, you know, as a as a Jew and as, you know, in my my grandparents generation, we had family die in the Holocaust. And, you know, that that there's like a tsunami effect from genocide that I think even sits with us two generations down. And um, and so I, f I have felt very deeply the existential threat to Israel because, you know, Hamas is it doesn't have an ideology. It just doesn't want a homeland like Palestinians. Their entire uh, 
reason for living is to destroy Israel and Jews mm -hmm. and and this savage brutality. And let me say, I do also feel the suffering of the innocent Palestinians. Um, and it's a very, I feel, I, so I feel and honor the suffering on both sides, but I really feel that it's the heinous, Hamas is putting their own people in that position. And the cancer metaphor is with me with this because, you know, with cancer, you first try prevention, then you try treatment. And if none of that works, <clears throat> then you have to surgically remove it. And, um, and even when I had chemo all those years ago, while it was trying to get the cancer cells, it also attacked a lot of healthy cells. That was the only way to remove the cancer. So again, I don't have any answers, but you know, I heard someone just recently, an expert on terrorism, speak about that these two things are not the same, that terrorists target civilians and, and you know, Israel is targeting Hamas and is trying to uh, uh, even giving notice to civilians. <clears throat> and still, it's terrible what's happening, but they're, they're not the same. It's a false equivalency. <clears throat> so I don't, I don't know how we move through this, of course, um, but it's very troubling. Um, well, and again, I think what you spoke to earlier was that we've become so disconnected from one another that we can't even listen and, and hear We've become so siloed in our belief system that there's no space for conversation anymore. It's like, you know, very entrenched, intense, you have to believe what I believe or. You know, I, want, I once had the, <clears throat> that privilege really to be in, in a meeting, a conversation with a person who had been a general in Mossad or a high official in Mossad. And, and he was working with, at that time, this was about 20, 15, 20 years ago, he was working with a Palestinian uh, uh, person to try to bring peace about. And what he said was, you know, I've, I've fought my whole life. And, and he said, if you enter this history from any, any point on either side, you have legitimate grievance and, to feel uh, hurt and betrayed. And it said it taught me that the only forward. And again, it's so difficult. I don't know how we do that, but I've, I've always remembered that. Well, it's not dissimilar to what you spoke about with the shaman and the healer. That, that you can't get pulled into the illness, but also how do you not get pulled into the illness, which is easier, yeah. a little bit easier when you're maybe facilitating healing. Um, I just want to ask you one last question. Again, I could, I would just stay here all day. Um, <laughs> the title of your book, Falling Down and Getting Up, it makes me think of, of a toddler. 
and their ability to, you know, when they fall and we say, you're okay. And then they pick themselves back up. How do, and it seems like it gets harder the, the older we get in life. <laughs> so, even though when they're little, we, we want to rush in and as a parent, you want to rush in and pick them right back up, but they seem to bounce back much easier than we do as adults. So how, how, how do we fall down and get right back up? Well, I think the entire book tries to explore that. And I think the first thing for me is, and what triggered that title is that medieval monks, when asked how they practiced their faith, said by falling down and getting up. And it made me think, too, of when I was in my cancer journey, you know, um, I had that rib removed from my back. I woke up from surgery and there was a nurse hovering over me. As soon as I woke up saying, uh, come on now, we're going to walk. And I was like, who's going to walk? <laughs> you know. And then she, then she said more gently, two steps forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. two step and then later, I, that this is how healing and how growth happens. Then later in the Hindu Upanishads, uh, which are the holy anonymous texts in the Hindu spiritual path, um, there's an image of a caterpillar. And how a caterpillar moves, it stretches out, but then it bunches up. It goes back, and then it moves forward, two steps forward, one step back. And in the Hindu Upanishads, they say, this is the rhythm of spiritual growth, like a caterpillar. We pull back, and then we go forward. We pull back, and then we go forward. And God, so the caterpillar butterfly is really like the most, I mean, what, now that you've said that, and you think about a butterfly, what it transforms into, it almost Absolutely. captures life in that way more than anything else I've ever heard. Absolutely. And, and so what it all opens up is that nobody likes to fall down, but you can't avoid it just like pain and fear and grief. And so when we back up enough, actually over our life, falling down and getting up is a dance. And the question is, how do we learn our personal form of that dance and and one last thing i'll say you know when i first started teaching from the new book in september i was at a retreat center in connecticut and there was a um a woman who was in her 80s and she was very attentive all weekend and then the last day she raised her hand and she said you know at my age of life i fall down more than i used to and there's wonderfully um people are always helping me up but, you know, I say to them, wait a second, because before I get up, I need to feel the downness. And that's that groundedness of feeling, not rushing to, to avoid what our experience is, but to feel it and move through it. And so the, I guess the last thing I'll, I'll share is a quote from Rilke, where he said, let everything happen beauty and terror. No one feeling is final. Keep going. Perfect words to end on, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for this, what felt like just this spiritual bath, shower, shower um, that I just took in your words. And I hope my listeners took as well. Um, do you want to tell anybody where they can find all of your work, your teachings, you do workshops, you, you do so much. 
Yeah, thank you. So um, uh, all my books you can find, you know, uh, at usual usual places. My website, marknepo.com, has all of my teachings. You know, I am going to be doing in the new year a couple of really interesting uh, uh, week-long uh, retreats. So one is with the Modern Elder Academy in Mexico in February. And you can find this on my website where I'll be doing a week um, on the new book, Falling Down and Getting Up. Um, and that's in February uh, 4 through 10. And the other is that um, uh, later in of next year, in December, I will also be teaching a week in Costa Rica um, through Global Journeys and Organization. And both of those are up on my website. They're kind of special journeys. Well, thank you. I'm sure that some of my listeners will check those out. So, Mark, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom over the course of your life. It's really um, profound and beautiful. There's so much more I wanted to share. I have things underlined. I have things marked in here. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a journey, right? This, this, Absolutely. This, this spiritual life that we are living. So, um, thank you for being part of my journey, my listeners' journeys today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.